Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm your co-host, Jacob Solis. This week, we have a segment for you on the transition from the Sisolak administration to the Lombardo administration. And after that, we head to Southern Nevada to hear about how a food pantry is trying something new to offer a better experience for those residents who use their services. At the end of the show, reporter Tabitha Mueller sits down with me to talk about the rise of anti-Semitic incidents in schools and how Washoe County is responding to calls for more inclusion and sensitivity towards minority students. Alrighty, well, I am here with the entire legislative team from the Nevada Independent, Jacob Solis, Sean Galanka, Tabitha Mueller. Thank you guys so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, happy to be here, Joey. Good to be here, yeah. And we are talking about the transition of power today, the the change of administration from the Sisolak administration to the Lombardo administration, our new governor. And so there's a lot to go over, and each of you have kind of reported on a different aspect of this. And we're going to start with Jacob here, talking about the legacy that Sisolak is leaving as he leaves office. What is that legacy, Jacob? It's a complicated one. And I think that you can really look at his tenure, his four years in office as pre-COVID, COVID, and then quote unquote, post-COVID. And in that early phase, he wins in 2018 and he comes in in 2019 at the head of a Democratic trifecta for the first time in 30 years, essentially. And he is the first Democratic governor Nevada's had in 20 years. And so there is really this broad mandate that Sislak had in 2019 specifically to, quote unquote, do whatever he wanted. What did that amount to? sort of less than what Democratic activists had been hoping for. You look at an issue like minimum wage, for instance, and cast our minds back to 2019, when everyone is clamoring for a $15 per hour minimum wage. And Sisolak backs an effort for $12.50 or $12, and not immediately, but over five years. And that's the kind of legislating through his power in the governor's office that Sisolak did a lot of, right? A lot of sort of proposals, high in the sky stuff that Democratic activists had wanted to do for years. But, you know, there was always a Republican governor in Carson City. Sisolak comes in and does some of it. And then COVID was COVID and he shut down the strip and that stuck with him. And a lot of health experts really praised the governor for doing it. But the flip side of that coin are the economic consequences, which were vast and we're still feeling today. And so he's carried that as sort of the main part of his legacy. And and I think, too, I mean, talking about that, the COVID response, I mean, experts that I spoke with in the healthcare industry called him the healthcare governor, right? He made unprecedented investments in the public health lab. He took steps to save lives, which, as Sean can tell you, is what did have economic consequences and did have a response from voters. But he was kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place, at least during the COVID pandemic. Yeah, I mean, certainly the the economic consequences of those actions were severe, harder than than they were anywhere else in the country. Nevada's unemployment rate skyrocketed. When you're talking about the economics, you also have to talk about the fact that the state did leave in a financially better place than when Sisolak first took over. Yeah, but I also think that one of the main things that really hurt him in the election was that the way the state used the money after the fact So Nevada gets this huge windfall of federal money from the American Rescue Plan, and it takes a really, really long time to spend it. And in fairness, it was a lot of money. Sisolak also had to bear the consequences of stuff like the of DETA, right? The Department of Employment Training and Rehabilitation, which is in charge of unemployment insurance. And when the unemployment insurance suddenly has one bajillion times the number of claims that it ever has the morning after he shuts down the strip, that shut down the state system, but not for a week or two weeks or a month. For over a year and a half. 
And that's, I think, what people stuck with, right? When they look at the government response to COVID from an economic perspective, not necessarily that like the strip is going gangbusters, but that like I had an um, unemployment claim that sat untouched for six months because I couldn't get someone on the phone. Well, let's talk about the inauguration of, of the new governor, Governor Lombardo. Tabitha, you were there for it. What was the general tone of the inauguration? I mean, I think most inaugurations, very celebratory. It's basically a veritable who's who of the Nevada Republican and Democratic parties. You had leaders from the state Senate, from the assembly. And it was really a moment for Lombardo to take ownership of, OK, we're starting a new administration. What I think is most interesting, though, is less of the inauguration and more of the days kind of following it. How is he defining his term? So far, Lombardo's already issued several executive orders, including directing the State Department of Administration to review and make recommendations for addressing a more than 24 percent vacancy rate among state positions and rescinding any remaining COVID-19 directives and orders. It's a move that his staff has described as primarily cleanup, in part because Governor Steve Sislak lifted the state of emergency in May of last year. He also issued orders that make cuts to professional licensing rules and require all executive branch entities to review existing state regulations and recommend at least 10 to be removed by May 1st. You also talked to his new chief of staff, former legislator Ben Kiekeffer, and, and you, you met with him last week. What was he telling you guys? What we need to understand is we're still waiting on the state of the state, which is going to be the big kind of layout of what Lombardo is going to do within his term, how he's going to approach office, what he's going to focus on. But what Kiefer sort of talked with us about is that the governor and his staff are preparing a state budget that is going to make unprecedented investments in K-12 education and that they are evaluating pay and benefits packages for state employees. Another kind of interesting point, I think, that that came out of that conversation was discussions about the public health care insurance option. That passed in the legislature last year, but there's still public hearings that need to happen. And Lombardo's administration pushed back a public hearing. They haven't commented yet on whether they're going to be trying to remove that. And I think partly that's because right now we have a divided government, right? You have Republicans that hold executive power, but Democrats hold a supermajority in the assembly and a majority in the state Senate. Does it seem like it's going to be difficult for Lombardo to accomplish any of his promises with that Democratic legislative majority? I think certainly some of the promises may be more difficult to achieve. Some I, I think will be simple. Tabitha talked about that executive order, getting employees back into offices, back to work. That was something that he had spoken about. That was something he had on his campaign website. So there are things like that that may be a little bit of a lower bar in terms of accomplishing it as a governor and with the powers of a governor. But some of the bigger promises that he's made, like enacting school choice or at least expanding options for school choice, those might not have as warm ears or as warm of a reception from the, the Democratic legislature. Lombardo, he said on the campaign trail he wants to be the education governor. So he has a lot of promises that revolve around that, or revolve around changes to K-12 through education. And really a key part of that is expanding school choice. But Historically in Nevada and elsewhere, Democrats have been opposed to that policy because they say it takes funding away from public education. It extends into into other policy areas beyond that as well. For example, just kind of in the, the criminal justice law and order realm, Lombardo has talked about prioritizing funding for state police, highway patrol, giving them raises. And 
Certainly, I think there there's probably some openness to state government worker raises. Lombardo has also been very openly opposed to some of the recent sentencing changes that were approved by Sisolak in a Democratic legislature. So if he's trying to walk back some of those recent criminal justice reform, the legislature, or at least Democratic lawmakers, might not be open to those changes. We have not heard Lombardo's plan for higher ed. He hasn't talked about funding colleges and universities, and they are clamoring for more funding in the same way that K-12 is. And we just simply haven't heard it discussed. So I think that there's sort of a lot we're going to learn in the next two weeks here. Let's talk a little bit about some of those other cabinet appointees. That's right. And I think the really interesting thing here is the continuity between Sisolak's administration at the end and Lombardo's incoming administration, because 10 out of 17 appointments that Lombardo announced last week are holdovers from Sisolak. A lot of them are sort of the, they're not the biggest agencies in the world, or, or like they're very administrative. So think places like the DMV, right? There's a state DMV administrator. That person is staying over from Sisolak to Lombardo. And to wrap up, Sean, I wanted to know two things, which is one, tell me a little bit about Lombardo's transition team and inaugural committee. Was there anyone on that that kind of stood out to you? Well, one person that stands out is one of Lombardo's inaugural co-chairs was Robert Bigelow, who is a, a wealthy hotel magnet based in Las Vegas. He, he gave about $25 million directly to either Lombardo's campaign or political committees that supported Lombardo's campaign, as well as even $10 million to, to Ron DeSantis. He's kind of the maybe a new kingmaker among Republican governors in, in the country. And so he was a major campaign donor, and he found himself on a inaugural team close kind of in Lombardo's sphere. And, and so already seeing some, some connections between people who supported his campaign and how, how he's conducting himself as governor. Well, Jacob, Sean, and Tabitha, thank you so much for talking with me today on the podcast about this transition. You'll all be in Carson City soon as we prepare to report on the legislature. So appreciate you guys. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks, Joey. Thanks. And now we're going to head from Carson City all the way down to Las Vegas to see how a food pantry is changing how they offer their services. You guys ready? Come on in. Ryan, come on, Dorian. I got to see your faces. So I'm go in. Well, I'm here with our education reporter, Rosia Hernandez. Thank you for joining me today. Hey, glad to be here. Yeah, yeah, glad to have you. And you recently went to a school in Clark County with our photographer, Daniel Clark, to talk to the Just One Project about opening a, a new type of food pantry. So to start off, let's talk about what the Just One Project actually is. Yeah, so the Just One Project is a local nonprofit here in Las Vegas. One of the things that they're most known for is their mobile markets. They have 46 and plus locations, including one in central Las Vegas that acts like a community market. So essentially, it's just like this giant store, except it's a food assistance service for people. So you can just stop by, grab the food that you need. And they also have case managers on site that provide you with additional services. Because one of the things that they say is that more often than not, it's not just food that families need. They have other needs and assistances that they are looking for, too. My name is Nellie Vega. I am the Community Connect Manager at the Just One Project. I oversee a team of five case managers, and we provide resources and assist people with applying for benefits on a daily basis, make sure that families and seniors have all the extra resources that they need. And so you talked to Brooke Neubauer, who's the, the founder and CEO of Just One Project, right? Yeah. And one of the things that I wanted to ask her was how this Insight School Market 
is different from the mobile market locations that they already have? And what benefit that really gives the Just One project and the students and families that this market will serve? There's a big difference between mobile and here. Here we actually have roots. Here we have a case manager on site who's always available to speak to the families directly in their spots. Um, and really just that safety factor, families feel really comfortable coming to a CCSD school location because it's something that they're familiar with. It's a brand that they know and trust. Um, and so for us to be able to have roots here and somewhere they can always count on to be is, is really important. I'm also curious, this is at a Title I school. What is a Title I school for those who don't know? The Title I school is a school that has a high percentage of students on what's called as free or reduced lunch. So these are typically low-income families. You know, the students qualify for this benefit so that they don't have to pay for their meals at school. And so that's one of the reasons probably why this market location, Garside Middle School, was chosen because there's such a high need of, of this service here in these families. Services office, and then here is their uh, extra. We have toiletries, pantry stuff, um, and then some clothes. I think that it would be amazing to have this in all the Title I schools. Like um, food insecurity is just like the start of the needs. And if someone is struggling with getting food on the table, nine times out of 10, they're struggling with other things as well. So we want to make sure that families are able to put food on the table and, and budget and learn, learn the things that they need to learn to maintain self-sufficiency. It's very cute. Like the aesthetic is very nice. So you feel already happy once you're in there. They've got all these bright colors. The food is stacked up on these shelves and they've got like basket and grocery bags. So it already has a different experience. Like you're, you're shopping. You're, you know, you're grabbing and enjoying your little visit there. And then they've got two refrigerators on the side where they you can get your regular refrigerated goods. I think the difference between a typical school pantry and the Just One Project community market in a school location is the fact that this mimics a small bodega that you would find in any metropolitan city. Uh, our focus is really fresh produce, fresh nutrition. Uh, we have a dairy department. It's, it's very different. We always have fresh produce, um, milk, eggs, cheese, butter, um, canned proteins, frozen proteins, bread, uh, grains, and canned fruits and vegetables. One of the staff members was laughing because they had eggs, and eggs are becoming such an expensive commodity nowadays. Just for that reason, it goes beyond a pantry. But then you've also got another section in the back where they've got backpacks and they've got hygiene products and they've got clothing. And then there's another space for case managers to give families additional assistance on top of the free food, hook them up with a job assistance, hook them up with housing assistance. So typically when a family comes in, we sit down with them and we perform a quick assessment, you know, that just consists of questions so that we get a better idea of the things that we can assist them with, whether it be school supplies, finding a job, um, applying for SNAP benefits, insurance, things like that. You know, just going a little bit beyond just, here's a food pantry, grab what you need and go. So what's the advantage of having this at a school in Clark County compared to, you know, having it set up somewhere else? Yeah, so that's one of the questions that I asked Brooke, the CEO of Just One. She said that before this, they did have markets that they held on site, kind of like in a parking lot of a school. 
But this is going to be a physical space that families and students will know is always there for them. So many low-income areas, a lot of people that are living below the poverty line have uh, transportation issues, um, and not to mention gas prices. So think about how many students are here, say a thousand students, that's a thousand families that we are able to be here consistently for, and that just in itself is rare. Say we have a single mom that comes in who's a parent at the school. Say all she needs is help finding a job and she needs childcare, free childcare. If we're able to help her with that resource, then she's able to provide self-sustainability for her household, which is amazing. And it allows them to build better relationships with the families and the students that they serve. Just being at a school, Brooke said, allows them to build that trust that is so essential for this kind of service. Hello, everyone. Thank you guys so much for being here today. Um, I trying not to be emotional. I'm so sorry. Today is such a big deal for us. So how important is it for this to be opening now in this timing? You know, we're kind of in this post pandemic brackish water area right now. You know, we're seeing the pandemic, you know, it's receding. So scaling back on some federal assistance that may have may have been out there for families during the pandemic, but now is the money's running out, it's running dry. And then we're also seeing, you know, rising living co- cost of living. We're seeing inflation and that's impacting our wallet in many ways. We saw those gas prices go up like crazy. And the food has just become so much more expensive or scarce at times, like we're seeing with the eggs. So really this market is coming in at this time where if people need extra assistance to get them through whatever is coming forward in this economic time, you know, we don't know. It's kind of scary. Are we heading into recession? Are we not? And now there's going to be this market to give families at least that certainty that food won't be an issue for them. All right. Well, Rocio Hernandez, thank you so much for being on the podcast today and reporting on the story. You can find it on our website, thenevadaindependent.com, as well as a video coming out soon as well. So thanks. And now we jump to a story in the Washoe County School District in northern Nevada, where the Jewish community is fighting for more training and understanding on behalf of students who face harassment and bullying in schools. All right, well, I'm here with reporter Tabitha Mueller, who has been doing a lot of stories on a lot of different topics recently. And one topic in particular that you've been you've been looking into for this story, specifically that we're going to talk about today, is anti-Semitism, actually. So, so there was an incident at a Reno Middle School recently that has sparked a lot of controversy in the Washoe County School District about anti-Semitism. This isn't like just specific to the school district, but it's kind of a, a microcosm, according to your story. Can you tell me a little bit about what sparked this whole conversation about anti-Semitism in the school district? Absolutely. So I think we need to first talk about, you know, how I kind of stumbled across this story, which we were working on a piece about, you know, some of the protections that local synagogues have had to put in place in light of rising anti-Semitic incidents. And, you know, we've seen an uptick throughout the last year. Reports from the Anti-Defamation League indicate that there were 2,717 anti-Semitic incidents that took place throughout the U.S. in 2021, which is the most since tracking began in So, you know, we're we're kind of reporting on this story and I hear from the rabbi that one of their congregants, her 12-year-old son found himself sitting in a dean's office 
after tensions escalated between him and another student when he shared that he celebrates Hanukkah and the other student made a comment about Hitler. Earlier that day in a different class, another student doodled swastikas on his paper. And what the parent kind of described to me was, you know, the the response of the school district was to just meet with the students and kind of handle it as a one-time incident. But the problem is, is that these types of incidents are more indicative of a bigger issue. So how how did the school district respond to 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 you know these 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 incidents? The the mother of the son only learned about the incident when her child came home from school. You know, she called the school, she asked for more details. They sort of described it as a one-time incident. The staff handled it, no alarm was necessary. And they sort of attributed it to the students being middle schoolers and sort of having undeveloped prefrontal lobes. You know, these are middle school students. It could kind of have been seen as an offhand comment or perhaps even a joke. But, but you know, to, to her son, it wasn't a joke. And this is what she had to say about it. I now have a child who doesn't want to be themselves at school. He doesn't want to talk about his family. He doesn't want to talk about his background. He doesn't want anyone that doesn't already know to know that he's Jewish. He doesn't want to wear his Star of David to school. You know, so there's now a sense of fear for him that there will be more retribution or that things will escalate or that he will be singled out. And I think what she wanted from the school district was a way to teach about acceptance and share understanding and to find a way to make sure that this didn't happen again. Like I we mentioned earlier, it is indicative of a much, much bigger problem, which is just growing anti-Semitism from both, you know, national figures, the artist formerly known as Kanye, spouting anti-Semitic tropes, and even anti-Semitic flyers being distributed in Boulder City, Nevada, in various neighborhoods. Yeah, I remember actually back when I was working for the Sagebrush in college, the the college newspaper at UNR, that we there was a lot of swastikas being drawn, you know, in, in the art building and, and around campus that I ended up reporting on. So, you know, it's definitely been something that I think I've seen growing in the state. Have you talked to anyone about kind of if they've seen it growing and, and how and why? Yeah, so I spoke with a couple of folks from the communities, different leaders. One of the leaders that I spoke to, her name is Rabbi Zober, who said that you will see this kind of national hate and violence, but the everyday anti-Semitism she and many of her congregants experience stems more from tokenization, ignorance, and and a lack of awareness about the Jewish faith. So going back to the school system, Zoberg said that ignorance manifests in a variety of ways, including the inability for Jewish students to get a perfect attendance record, right, because they have to miss school for religious holidays. Or it's not a lack of understanding around religious head coverings or even this assumption that most children have a Christian upbringing, right? The community here is small. There's a lot of fear around raising your voice, around sticking out. There, there are ways to go about this that recognizes students' backgrounds and individual experiences, but the school system, at least from what Zobra has seen and some of her congregants, is, is not equipped for that. They also have yeah. an, adv- an advisory council, right, or an advisory board that kind of advises the school district on this kind of thing. Have they said anything about this? Yeah, so there was actually a big meeting 
a kind of town hall meeting with the superintendent where the mother that I spoke with and a couple other parents raised, you know, some concerns about, you know, the district's policies and what was going on. And Judith Schumer, who's the chairperson of the Nevada Governor's Advisory Council on Education related to the Holocaust, spoke up at that town hall meeting and she was saying that it's necessary to educate students about hate crimes. We have to educate our children that hate of any kind is wrong. We've taught them that when they see a black child, they don't use the N-word. When we see a Native American child, we don't make fun of them, or an Asian child. Putting swastikas on a notebook of a Jewish child is hate. And that's what we have to work against, and that's what we educate against, we educate with the governor's council. And we have programs that come into the schools. We have programs for teachers. Use us. Use us as your source, because we are here and we will help. It is through education. Even as Beth said, if we hit one child, if we can get one or two or three children to understand that what they have done was wrong and hateful, then we have done our job. It's a matter of the resources are there and how do we make sure that teachers are equipped, right? One of the things that Rabbi Zobar and I talked about is that right now, how a student feels in the classroom is very dependent on a teacher-by-teacher basis. And to her, it seems as though the school district doesn't have a comprehensive guidebook for how to deal with some of these incidents that we've been talking about. And so it's a matter of making sure that all teachers are properly trained, that there's a calendar that acknowledges other faith systems, you know, whether that's for Muslims and Ramadan or Jews and, you know, Rosh Hashanah or other high holidays. And so I think that all of this stems from a desire to have a comprehensive policy. And this is what Rabbi Zober kind of had to say about that. Because there are so few of us, um, there's not an awareness of the ways in which we still need folks at on the administrative level to pay attention to these things, right? That even when there's one Jewish kid in each school in the district, it behooves them to have a district-wide policy. We need anti-bias training. We need it for the black community. We need it for the queer community. We need it for the Jewish community and the Muslim community and the Sikh community and all of, like, just straight up anti-bias training for teachers and administrators, because that is a very, very basic step that I don't see. If they're doing it, it's not working. Um, and if they're not doing it, it's a gross oversight. I do think that the school district is going to have to contend with some of these issues. When asked about this at the meeting, Superintendent Einfield said, our schools are microcosms of the larger society. And Judy and I were talking about the NPR story that we were just listening to that was talking about anti the Anti-Defamation League has said anti-Semitic incidents are at the highest they've ever been in recent years. Um, and I think we've all seen what's been happening sort of at the national level with people in very powerful public positions saying wildly wrong, inappropriate, and hateful things. Um, so one of the things that I was just talking with the principal here about and with Michelle about is I am going to, first of all, make sure that I send a message out to all of our principals to say we know that we've had some recent events of 
hate speech, intimidation, what have you, we need to make sure that our schools are safe and welcoming and where students all feel respected um, and not intimidated. And when there is an incident at your school, you can't ignore it, right? So a letter needs to go home to families acknowledging that this happened and here's what we're going to do to take this unfortunate incident as an opportunity to educate both the students and the adults alike in the building. The Department of Homeland Security actually put out at the end of November issued an advisory about terrorism threats in the United States and warning targets of potential violence could include faith-based institutions and religious minorities. I think that it's a matter now of just being aware of this issue, trying to address it, saying what steps can we take. And, And there's a lot of work being done within this sphere and a lot of advocacy But it does take officials listening and sort of moving forward based on the recommendations of a variety of individuals. All right. Well, Tabitha Mueller, thank you so much for joining me today. You can find your story on the NevadaIndependent.com as well as lots of other reporting. So thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. This show is produced and edited by me, Joey Lovato, with additional help from Michelle Rundells and Tom Tate. If you want to support the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen. You can also email us at podcast at theenvyindy.com. Our theme song is from Emily Pratt, and we have additional music from Storyblocks, June Pearson, and Joey. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week.